Turn to Philippians chapter 3, if you would, please. Philippians chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me just remind you that probably the key verse in Philippians is 127, which says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And I think it would be fair to say that almost every verse and every subject in the book of Philippians would fit into 127 one way or another. He addresses our behavior, our Christian walk. It's because of Christ and his gospel that this matters. Our conduct is because of Christ, not simply to be seen of men. And standing for the truth is vital. It does matter what you believe. And unity among our fellow believers is vital. And it's also difficult because we all have remaining sin still. And then not just standing for the truth, but striving together for the faith of the gospel, no matter what the cost. That is our mission. No matter what the cost. And, you know, we've, we've been blessed in our country. The costs have not been as great as many have had to pay. Certainly not as great as the Apostle Paul himself had to pay. That's in God's sovereignty, too. So, with that little introduction, let me just read you where we were last week. Without too much comment, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And this is for context. Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation, those that trusted in circumcision for salvation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So as we begin the new material, let's just read verses 4 through 8 together. And this is where we'll be today. And, and, and we'll go a little further. Lord, when we'll go all the way down through verse 11. Verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. That doesn't sound like a compliment, but, but it really is something big. Uh, you didn't just say, I want to be a Pharisee and become a Pharisee. You, you had to be trained and you had to study and you had to prove yourself to the others there. Okay. Six, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That might surprise you, but we'll talk about why. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. So that's where we start today. We start with Paul's personal pedigree. This passage, along with 2 Corinthians 11 and Galatians 1 and 2, are Paul's personal autobiography. They tell us much about our apostle, the theologian of the church, who God used his learning, God used his diligence, God used his strength. God used all of these things in the makeup of who the apostle Paul was to be our apostle. And you notice there's a change from verse 3 to verse 4. 
In verse 3, he's talking to the church. He says, we. Verse 4, he says, I. And he begins to speak about himself. Not because he's proud. No, not at all. Sometimes he had to actually defend his apostleship. Not really doing that here. He's not defending his apostleship. But he's just telling us, as it says in verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And then he goes about to prove it. He goes about to prove what he had accomplished. And, um, well, you know, with all that being said and done, he had advantages by birth. And, and each of these are important, and they come in, in descending order of importance. The, the biggest one, circumcised the eighth day. That's a big deal in, in this particular time. A big deal, certainly, to the Judaizers who said, unless you be circumcised after the matter of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay? That was their mantra. That's the way they spoke. Of course, they're wrong. Well, Paul was circumcised on the eighth day, and this was in accordance with the law of Moses, and um, was the most important issue to the Jews of the day. And it's likely that many of the Judaizers that he's combating, it's likely that many of them were proselytes. They'd become Jews, maybe as teenagers, maybe as uh, young people, maybe as adults, they were circumcised. Okay, well, that's, that's commendable in the, the Jewish faith. But Paul says, mine was exactly the way it was supposed to be. On the eighth day. And he said something like that about Roman citizenship too, if you remember in the book of Acts. Uh, where they found out um, he was in, in trouble, they were going to beat him, and they were going to persecute him. And he says, would you dare do that to a Roman citizen? I go, oh, no. <laughs> Can't do that to a Roman citizen. Because whatever you do to a Roman citizen, they're going to turn around and do to you. Okay, So that's not going to be a good idea at all. And uh, the centurion says... With, with a great amount of money, I bought this liberty and freedom. He says, yeah, but I was born free. Again, it was even greater that way. He had advantages by birth. He was of the stock of Israel. Uh, he wasn't a, a proselyte. He had Jewish heritage of long standing of the tribe of Benjamin. I have it on your outline there, and you can read it. Um, but it has to say about that. H.A.A. Kennedy says, this tribe stood high in Jewish estimation, not only as descending from Rachel, Jacob's best-loved wife, but as remaining loyal to the house of David and after the exile, forming with Judah the foundation of the future nation. So, you know, we would think of Saul and probably not have a very good feeling about Saul because we saw his wicked character. We saw how even though he was chosen by the Lord, to, to be the first king of Israel. Uh, he was a wicked man himself trying to destroy David. Well, Paul's Jewish name was Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, something that actually he was proud of. And um, I would just make an application here. Uh, there is nothing wrong with nationalism. I know that's not a popular thing to say in our day. But uh, I really believe that whatever country a Christian lives in, he should be the very best citizen he possibly can be. The very best citizen without compromise. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with nationalism. Uh, they call it bigotry. They call it a lot of other things. But uh, to be an American is a great thing. 
And some of you have become Americans. And uh, I commend you for that. That's a great thing, too. You know, nothing wrong with, with being a good citizen and loving your country. But Paul's heritage is like our heritage. It's got to be subservient to his greatest loyalty, which is to Jesus Christ. And then as we're going through the advantages he had by birth, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And this has to do with uh, Greek speaking, being Hellenized. He wasn't born in Jerusalem, it's true. But um, he actually was uh, very well versed in Hebrew. Again, in the book of Acts, we see this happen. As he addresses the crowd, he begins to speak to them, the Jewish mob that is enraged against him, wants to kill him in Acts 21. And he begins to address them in their own language. He knew Aramaic, he knew Hebrew, he knew Greek, you know. And they were shocked at his learning. But he was a learned man. Um, next week, we will honor the graduates here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. And we don't do that just uh, lightly. We actually care about education. We care about people making the best of themselves and, and bettering themselves. And, and some that you'll see will be adults that have gone back to school uh, long after their time uh, of school passed. Others, of course, will be high school graduates. There'll be a few college graduates. We got a lot of graduates this year. I'm surprised how many we have. You know, and that's a good thing. We encourage education. But I'll tell you, education can become a God of its own. And education can lead you away from God. You've got to be strong. And you've got to stand in the midst of what actually is often lies. But a good education will open doors for you. And we encourage that. So those are the advantages that Paul had gained by his birth. There were advantages that Paul attained by his own efforts. We see that in, in verse, um, the end of verse 5. Uh, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. You know that, right? How zealous was he? He was so zealous, he left everything so that he could capture men and women and turn them over to the Jewish authorities. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. So a Pharisee first we look at, and um, the unbelieving Pharisees found themselves um, perplexed by Paul because Paul believed in the resurrection. Paul believed in the host of heaven and angels. These are the things that Paul confessed. The Pharisees had to agree with that. And Paul used that to his own advantage when the Sadducees and Pharisees were coming against him together uh, in, in a, a public setting uh, to try to to, to destroy him, actually. And instead he says, because of the resurrection of the dead, I am accounted that. And uh, I really took note of it this year in my devotional reading, which just finished the book of Acts, and now I'm into Romans. But um, almost every time he talked about it, in, from Acts 20 on, he said, for the resurrection of the dead is why I'm in trouble. The reason I'm in chains is because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. He held to the orthodox truths of the Pharisees, but he saw Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the fulfillment of all these things, which, for the most part, they did not. Although many of them did come to believe. Again, many priests came to believe. 
Many Pharisees came to believe. How many Sadducees came to believe? I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. The Bible doesn't talk much about that. I'm sure there were some. There were some that were, were plucked out of that uh, dead, dead orthodox, unorthodox really, it wasn't even orthodox, that, that dead uh, political system. But the Pharisees were looked upon by the common people as holy men. And it appears that their greatest problem, aside from rejecting Jesus Christ, was they loved to be seen as holy men. That's what they loved. They loved to make the long prayers. They loved people to say how great and wonderful they were. And, unfortunately, human nature, they loved to look down on others that they felt were beneath them. Paul was a persecutor. You know that. I won't elaborate on that too much. He was an active persecutor because of the false zeal that he had. And he was blameless. That's what it says. It says, I was blameless, which is in the law, blameless. And it seems ridiculous to us to say that because who could say they're blameless when it comes to the law? Well, according to the Pharisaic understanding of the law, and what constituted obedience, he was scrupulous. He was a stickler for details. As a Pharisee, he would be like those that counted out tithes of, of mint and anise and, and those sorts of things, right down to the, the smallest grain, you know. And uh, you might remember the rich young ruler who approached Christ. He also claimed that he had obeyed all the laws from his youth. And then, of course, Christ got him you know, by, by convicting him for sure. But they believed it, you know. The rich young ruler was willing to say, I've kept everything from my youth up. What do I still lack? That gives us hope that he actually did come to Christ later because he did say, what do I still lack? He knew that something was missing. He knew that something was wrong. Well, the apostle Paul was willing to put his law-keeping up against theirs Paul was willing to engage in a righteousness competition with them. You know, but that's not where it ends. Aren't you glad that's not where it ends? You know, what a terrible thing if that's the way we had to live our lives. Paul thought he stood on solid ground when he was Saul. And then on the Damascus Road, he found out this solid ground was in reality quicksand. And so we go to Paul's losses and gains. My notes, uh, just uh, as a aside, uh, the sermon's entitled Calculating Gains and Losses. And then I put a, a little parenthesis in there in something far more important than the stock market. Okay? Far more important than the stock market. Yeah. Paul's losses and gains. It's important to note Paul's gains in a human temporal sense were real gains. They really were. They were real gains in his society. He was respected among his peers. He had reached a place of success. Okay, but his losses were real losses. Because humanly speaking, he lost it all. No doubt some of his former friends would say he had it all and threw it away on some fantastical idea, some fanatical idea. And you might remember Paul as he stood before um, the authorities in, in Jerusalem. He said, uh, they said, Paul, much learning has driven you mad, you know. Well, they didn't respect him too much. 
thought he was crazy. They literally thought he was crazy and that his studies had driven him over the edge that way. But when Paul went about his work of arresting Christians, Paul was arrested by Christ on the Damascus Road. And everything he cherished caved in around him. His entire way of thinking had to change. He simply couldn't go on in his life and add Christ to what he already had. He now had an entirely new life in Christ. Something that we all find as Christians. And then as we move ahead, Paul's gains were rubbish compared to new life in Christ. And you're going to find this Greek word. It's a, well, let's look at verse 8 first. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And uh, I found that interesting that the New King James would, would go with rubbish. The ESV goes with rubbish. Some other translations I, I looked at uh, used dung or other words for dung. Okay, so which one should it be? You know, yeah, you know, I didn't say other words than dung. You know. um, well, rubbish is probably from the, the scholars that I read a more comprehensive word than dung, although dung does fit. It, it's not wrong to translate this dung, it certainly can mean that. But that's not all that, that this Greek word means, it, it can mean like the half eaten and rotten corpse of an animal that had died. Uh, it can mean something that is covered in maggots and flies are around. Okay, so you get the idea of what we're talking about, right? It's a strong word. It's really bad what's taking place here. And he said, all my gains were rubbish compared to my new life in Christ. Comparatively speaking, and maybe a good illustration of this would be um, the, the good food left over from a feast and you throw it in the trash. Okay, that's kind of a shame when that happens. But uh, go three or four days later and open that trash can and, and see what it looks like. Okay, it's rubbish. Okay, so there's a good illustration of it there. And he says, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. You know, we really don't know much about Paul's family. He apparently didn't have a wife, you know, which is unusual for a Pharisee not to have a wife. So maybe he did at one time and she died. He certainly didn't have a wife uh, by the time he's writing the epistles. But uh, I've suffered the loss of all things because of Christ. What did his family think about him becoming a Christian? I've known many people, um, even in our own church, whose families were less than pleased when they became a Christian. They wanted to stay in a tradition like the Catholic religion, even though they probably never went to church, maybe on Easter, maybe, you know, on Christmas, you know, that twice a year, you know, they, they darkened the door of a church. But uh, when somebody became a Christian and became excited about the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that met with opposition. What about Paul? Well, coming from such a strict Jewish background, you'd have to think that uh, it wasn't um, real popular with his family, and it wouldn't have been popular with his family unless the Lord intervened. But we do have one small glimpse of um, 
of Paul's family. There's a nephew mentioned in the Bible, okay? And this nephew was a young man, and he found out that there was a conspiracy to kill Paul. And so the nephew goes and, and uh, tells Paul, and then Paul says, you know, to, to the centurion, take this, to, take this man and listen, listen to this, what this young man has to say. And uh, it was actually the means that God used to save Paul's life from a conspiracy to kill him. Well, if it's a nephew, then um, he must have had sympathies for Paul. And Paul must have had a, a brother or a sister to have a nephew, you know. So these are the things that we just don't know. Paul doesn't talk about his family life as such. And um, we do know this. His fellow countrymen who would at one time have respected him now hate him and tried to oppose him and refute him at every turn. As you read the book of Acts especially, you'll find that there were actually Judaizers that would follow Paul around and try to destroy his ministry and um, mock his ministry and, and say that he was wrong, of course. Okay. But what did Paul have? He had the all-surpassing excellence of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now, that's significant. Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's personal. That's coming right down to the idea that uh, he never could have known by all of his former advantages. Paul at last had attained the true knowledge of God. Paul really didn't know God until he came to know Jesus Christ. Paul thought the law would show him God. Paul found that only the Son reveals him. And then what's his greatest goal? That I may gain Christ. That I may gain Christ. Just going right through the text. It's what it says, you know. Talking about the advantages of birth, the advantages attained by his own efforts, his losses and gains. And it's there on your outline. That I may gain Christ. And certainly the judgment day is in view. But I think there's more than the judgment day in view here. In that Roman prison cell, Paul knew Christ. And Paul is talking about his present union with Christ, which, of course, would be fully vindicated at the great judgment, but was a reality in the midst of that prison cell, too. And then verse 9, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. One of my favorite verses, just read it together with me. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith. I was looking for a way to explain alien righteousness a little bit and then came across Sinclair Ferguson from a friend of mine. He put it on Facebook of all places. I hardly ever go on Facebook, but I'm glad I did this time. You know, a friend of mine that, that um, quoted Sinclair Ferguson and said, the lawmaker became the law keeper, but then took our place and condemnation as though he were the lawbreaker. I don't know how you say it better than that, to tell you the truth. You know, that in three succinct lines, it says it all. The lawmaker became the law keeper, but then took our place and condemnation 
as though he were the lawbreaker. Well said by Sinclair Ferguson, one of our, I'm not sure he's still alive, but he's been one of our better theologians over the years, along with R.C. Sproul and a few others we could name. So, alien righteousness explained, this righteousness is Christ's righteousness. And the book of Romans explains that very fully to us. And, and I was going to read some passages from Romans until I found the Sinclair Ferguson. And uh, I don't really have to explain that one very much. It, it's right out there in the open for you. Well, the book of Romans is a tremendous book and it tells us so much. And what we have here in shorthand in Philippians 3, 9, is what so much of the book of Romans is all about. And no doubt the Apostle Paul, as he preached to the Philippians and had preached to them in the past, uh, they well knew this doctrine of alien righteousness that he talks about and being in Christ and union with Christ. And the, <coughs> excuse me, this righteousness does not come from law keeping. Paul was not content to add Christ to his works. Paul was not content to bring his works to Christ. Paul was not going to believe for a moment that he could earn his own salvation. Paul refused to allow even one tiny particle of his own ability and effort to count toward his salvation. And as I say that, who worked harder than Paul? Who suffered more than Paul? Who gave up more than Paul? Well, that's not what he's willing to talk about, though. You know, this tireless work and endless suffering came from gratitude to God. And not so he could earn what God had given to him. And God used Paul's background, all of his learning, but something else too. God used Paul being a persecutor to understand something about evil human nature. And as he sat in that jail cell, I know he thought, this is what I used to do. This is what I used to be. How can I hate these people when God saved me from doing this sort of thing to his people? And instead of feeling sorry for himself, we find him in jail singing hymns. Instead of feeling sorry for himself as he's chained to Roman soldiers, we find him preaching to Roman soldiers. We find him doing exactly what he ought to be doing because he didn't let the circumstances get him down. Instead, he realized what he had been and what God had done and realized that God can do that for them too. And he did. We find some places in the New Testament where he talks about those of Caesar's household. You know, those of Caesar's household that had come to believe. Now, by Caesar's household, it doesn't mean his Caesar's kids or anything like that. Uh, a household might be a thousand people, you know, easily in that particular day. The servants and the people watching over and such like that. But we know that Paul was used to preach the gospel in Rome most of the time either in chains or under house arrest. Okay. This righteousness is appropriated by faith. If Paul knew anything, if Paul taught anything, if Paul had one thing that firmly stuck in his mind and heart, it was that salvation is by faith alone, and even this faith did not come from himself. It was God's gift to him. And this righteousness comes from God. This righteousness comes from God. B.B. B. Warfield quote there that is on your outline. 
the gospel to Paul consists precisely in this, that we can do nothing to earn our salvation or secure it for ourselves. God in Christ does it all. So faith is the means that God uses to justify. And this faith is God's gift to us, and we believe because he's opened our hearts to believe. And is there a responsibility for every man to repent and believe? Is there a responsibility for every man, every woman, every child to repent and believe? Well, you know the answer to that if you were at the 10 o'clock service. The answer is most certainly yes. And hopefully you knew it anyway. (laughs) But but it was definitely brought home at the 10 o'clock service. There is a responsibility for every man, woman, and child to repent and believe. Every person is responsible to God. And you are responsible to repent and believe. Every single one of us in this room with our eternal souls hanging in the balance. Our eternal souls. But the other side of the coin, can any man choose to repent and believe of his own accord and libertarian free will? And the answer is no. It it takes a powerful work of the Spirit. Otherwise, men will be content to ignore God or even become the religious zealot like Saul. That's what will happen, you know. Well, the very fact that you're under the sound of the gospel today is a hopeful sign that you know him and that you have believed in him or will come to faith in him. And that's what he says as we just close very quickly here. Verses 10 and 11. Notice the heart of the apostle. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Oh, we might want to know the the power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings, that, that doesn't seem so cool. But that's what he wanted too. The fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So we do know he's thinking about the the great judgment of the last day. To know him. To know him, first of all. Paul already spoke about the knowledge of Christ in verse 8. He now defines the content of the faith we spoke about in the previous verse by explaining what it means to know Christ. And knowing is something that's never accomplished in this life. But there is an end result to it. There's an end goal. We're growing day by day. Progressive sanctification is something that a Christian learns more about day by day by day by day. It's literally to know him. And the end goal is given up in the next two phrases. Knowing his resurrection power, we're in 10 and 11. The power that raised Christ from the dead is exemplified in our life when we are turned from death to life and new life in Christ. And the sinner is dead in trespasses and sins. The Holy Spirit makes us alive in regeneration. And this is resurrection power. And knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. Whatever you're going through right now, and I know some of you are going through some pretty tough things, don't forget that God's in control. Don't forget that God has it all figured out. You don't know what's going to happen. Admittedly so. And it can look very bleak, very dark, very hard. You know, but God has it under control. Look to him. And when we say knowing the fellowship of his sufferings, he's not talking about redemption. 
Christ suffered redemptively on the cross. Christ suffered the wrath of God once for all for his people. And wrath is not on you, Christian friend, because it was on Christ. So what does Paul mean, the fellowship of his sufferings? Well, he's writing from prison. Why is he in prison? Is he an evil guy? Is he a wicked man? Has he stolen? Has he lied? Has he cheated? No. He's in prison because of the gospel. And he willingly entered into tribulation for the sake of the gospel and tells us to do the same thing. Again, it's something that doesn't happen to us all that often because of the society we live in. But I think you'll agree with me, society's not getting better. You know, things, things aren't looking up and say, well, we're just about ready to, to turn the corner here and, and do really, really well, you know. No. Paul willingly entered into tribulation for the sake of the gospel. Acts 14.22, he exhorts them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He could have taken the easy way out. He could have silenced his mouth. He could have lived the rest of his life as a simple tent maker, making an adequate living, and uh, not being noticed. And we wouldn't be talking about the Apostle Paul today. Okay. Because he was just so busy making tents that he didn't do anything else. But Paul had a commission given by God. And Paul knew just because there was trouble, he should not quit. And Paul knew that Christians will suffer trials. Don't you wish you lived in a world without trials? without pain, without sickness, without problems, you know, without interpersonal problems. Christian friend, you'll, you'll live in that world one day for all eternity. That's the world you will live in. It's not the world we live in today. You know. And Paul knew that Christians would suffer trials and conforming to his death while waiting for the resurrection Verse 11, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's a verse in John 12 that is a very interesting verse. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If you're involved in agriculture at all, you've got an idea of what that means. If you've ever planted something, you know, the seed doesn't literally die, but it literally changes, and what it has inside springs forward that way. And so you need to plant it, and then it needs to grow. And that's what he's talking about. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ literally did die, but he died on purpose. And that's what he's talking about, you know. If it dies, it bears much fruit, you know. And so it was with Christ. He had to die to bring life to all those who are in him. And so it must be with us, too. We, too, must die. And it's through death that we enter eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord. Some commentators that I read misunderstood Paul. I believe they misunderstood him. Uh, they, they think that he's hoping for a martyr's death. And I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, we've already read in, in Philippians that he was more than happy to, to be delivered to them and hoped that he would, but if not, then he was willing whatever God would have him to do. 
He wasn't looking for a martyr's death. He was willing to die, but believed they would continue to live because that was more profitable. And historically, he did continue to live. And he did continue to minister. And he did continue to preach the gospel until the time that God ordained the old saying, off with your head, which is what happened to the Apostle Paul. It wasn't Paul's goal to die. Paul had a goal. He wanted to run the race that was set before him, the race that was given to him by God. He knew he'd die one day. He certainly did know that. But his goal wasn't dying. His goal was living for Christ until God called him home. You know, so one thing he wouldn't do is compromise the gospel just to simply avoid trouble. And he wouldn't compromise the gospel and quit or stop preaching the gospel because that's what he was told to do. So may the Lord help us in that very same way to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, to look to him. If you don't know him, I hope that you've paid special attention to some of these verses because you need to know him. Your eternal destiny rests on whether you know him or not. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we saw a very personal glimpse, a very personal glimpse of the life of the theologian of the church. The things that he had, the things that he gave up, and the things that he did attain by your grace and by your mercy. Who better speaks about faith? Who better speaks about righteousness in Christ? Who better delineates these things to even such an extent that some people accused him of being a libertine? He said, we're falsely accused of saying that. Paul was not a libertine at all. But Paul also did not trust in the law, did not trust in what his hands have done, did not trust in his own works. He trusted in the work that was done for him by the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to stand for Christ. Help us to look to Christ. We thank you that we are in Christ. And we know, Father, that uh, whatever you've ordained for us in our individual lives, you promised that you would be with us to the end. And that's what counts the most. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.